Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. For your grace and your mercy this morning as we have gathered to sing praises to your son, Jesus, our precious Jesus. And it's our prayer this morning that if there's anybody in this room that has never trusted in Christ alone, today would be their day of salvation. That when they place their trust in Jesus Christ, they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is worthy, he is beautiful, he can be counted on, He can give us eternal life. He can forgive sins. He can do amazing things in our lives. And so, Jesus, we come before you this morning, and we want to have our eyes fixed upon you. We want to be focused upon you. Holy Spirit, come during this moment and teach us. You are the Spirit of truth, and you guide us in all truth, and so we need your help. May everything this morning be done to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated, children, in fifth grade on down. You may leave now to go practice your... Christmas music. In a few weeks, we'll be blessed with the children doing that. And um, thank you to Andrew for sharing his testimony and his call. Um, There's a potluck afterwards where you will have an opportunity to maybe get to know Andrew and Julie a little bit better. And then tonight at 6.30, we'll come back and have a time of, of a called business meeting where church members will have an opportunity to vote to extend a call to Andrew and Julie to come be a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church. So we're thankful for all the things that God has done um, in their lives to bring them to this point. So um, thank you for sharing, Andrew, and thanks for sharing with the youth this morning, too. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. And as you're turning there, I want to begin by reading some words from Charles Spurgeon. It's always good to start a sermon with Spurgeon. This was from a sermon that he preached in 1886. And I'm going to read it just like Spurgeon said it, so there may be a little bit of a British thing here, but um, I'm not going to read it in a British accent, okay? I'm just going to read it. I don't know how Spurgeon spoke, but um, hear the words of Charles Spurgeon. If ever there should come a wretched day When all our pulpits shall be full of modern thought and the old doctrine of a substitutionary sacrifice shall be exploded, then will there remain no word of comfort for the guilty or hope for the despairing. Would you have me silence the doctrine of the blood of sprinkling? Would any one of you attempt so horrible a deed? Shall we be censored if we continually proclaim the heaven-sent message of the blood of Jesus? Shall we speak with bated breath because some affected person shudders at the sound of the very word blood? Or some cultured individual rebels with the old-fashioned thought of sacrifice? Nay, verily, we will sooner have our tongue cut out than cease to speak of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And the very mention of blood this morning may make some of you feel nauseated. Some of you may feel queasy when I begin to talk about blood. Because when you think about blood, it's not tidy. It's not neat. It's yucky. And it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be offensive. I mean, when I go and give blood, I, I feel a little queasy. 
at the sight of, of blood. And you may be asking me this morning, Sean, why are you talking about blood? Can't you be a little bit more sophisticated? I mean, can't you be up with the times? Why, why be so offensive and talk about blood? Let's not be so offensive this morning. Christianity is a bloody religion. Our entire faith rests upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And if we ever move away from the offense of a bloody cross, we've moved away from what it means to be Christian. So we've got to talk about blood this morning. Some of the great hymns of the faith speak about blood. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners purged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood and the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you over evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for sins that I had done? He groaned upon the tree, amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross is the greatest moment in all of history. The universe points to the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for sinners. Now, what in the world does this have to do with Hebrews chapter 11? Last week, we looked at Moses. We were introduced to the faith of Moses, and we saw that Moses had a faith that did not crumble in the face of overwhelming opposition. His parents didn't fear the edict of the king. His parents had radical courage. Moses was willing to suffer loss in order to gain Christ. He said goodbye to all of the, the riches and wealth that he had in Egypt, and he was willing to suffer reproach because he felt like Jesus was more glorious than all the things that Egypt had to, to offer him. And he also endured through major obstacles and trusted in the invisible hand of God. And this morning, we come to what the writer of Hebrews tells us is probably the most important event in the entire Old Testament. The Passover. The Passover. The Passover. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28, and let's discover another feature of Moses' faith. Hebrews eleven, twenty-eight, one verse. By faith, speaking of Moses, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And the then there is the Israelites. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So what amazing thing do we see here in this passage of Scripture that tells us about what authentic faith truly is? It's simply this. Authentic faith trusts in God's provision of a substitutionary atonement. Authentic faith trusts in God's provision of a substitutionary sacrifice. Now, you may be asking yourself, what is a substitutionary atonement? What is a substitutionary sacrifice? Why all this talk about blood, Pastor Sean? Well, I hope to unpack that for you this morning as we look at the Exodus, as we look at the Passover. Now, we need to retrace our steps for just a few moments. Because what becomes before 
Exodus is Genesis. And back in Genesis chapter 12, God gave a promise to Moses or, or to Abraham, right? God said to Abraham, you will be a great nation. You will be a blessing to the nations. You will have a land. You will inherit the promised land. You will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. You will be an amazing, great nation. Now, what happens at the beginning of Exodus? Where are they? They are in Egypt. They are a great nation. So let's turn back to Exodus this morning. We're going to spend most of our time in Exodus. We're finally out of Genesis. You can maybe keep a finger in Hebrews 11. Exodus chapter 1, we find the Israelites in Egypt. And we find out that they are a mighty nation in number. But there's something very significant that is happening to them. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, there's the promise to Abraham. They were a huge nation. They were a populous nation. They were a mighty nation in number. But now look at verse 8. Here's the problem. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Large nation, right? But what's the problem? They are slaves. They are in bondage. They are ruthlessly being beaten as slaves under the harsh taskmasters of Egypt under Pharaoh. And so God calls Moses to lead the nation out of slavery. God comes to Moses and says, you're going to lead my people out of this bondage to the promised land. But before that happens, there's one event that must occur. You have to celebrate the Passover. Before you can leave, before you can exit, that's what the word exodus means, before you can exit, there's got to be a Passover celebration. So let's turn over to Exodus chapter 12 and see the institution of the Passover. This is the tenth and final plague before the nation of Israel leaves bondage, before they leave slavery. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, each according to what they can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. 
They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. And in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. One of the first things we see here is that God is a God of justice. God is a God of wrath. He's going to execute justice on his enemies. He's going to pass over and kill the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Now, the Egyptians are pagans. They live in idolatry. And God, in his absolute sovereignty, is going to come and mete out justice and wrath upon his enemies. We see this in verses 12 and 13. I will execute judgments. I will be the destroyer. I will strike the land. Does this bother you? Does this make you bristle? When you think about God meeting out judgment upon his enemies? Do we often think about God being a God of wrath who has absolute rights to destroy whoever he wants? You see, until we come to grips with the fact that God is absolutely sovereign, God is absolutely holy, God is absolutely righteous, we will never appreciate the grace that comes to us when a God who says, I have every right to incinerate you off this planet, decides not to. And let me just say this, if God were to annihilate all of us this morning, he would do us no wrong. He would be just in doing so. So we can never impugn God and say, God, you're unfair, because God has every right to destroy all of us. But for the Israelites, God makes a provision. God says, I'm making a provision for you. What's the provision? It is blood, the blood of a lamb, blood painted on the lintel and doorpost of your house. Now let's think for a moment before we get too comfortable with the Egyptians. Yes, the Egyptians were pagan idolaters, right? But let me ask you a question. Was Israel any less guilty? Was Israel any less guilty? Did Israel have any merit in themselves as a nation that they were worthy of God's grace? Were they more spiritual? Were they more intelligent? Were they more with it? Was Israel any more worthy of salvation than the Egyptians? As a matter of fact, if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 20, you find that Israel was just as idolatrous as the Egyptians. They were idolaters. They were, they were, they were wicked in their hearts. They were just as much of a sinner than Egyptians, and they deserved wrath as well. But there was one difference, one huge difference. God provides a provision, blood, a lamb on the doorpost of your house. Now let's see how this story unfolds. Go down to verse 21 of chapter 12. Verse 21, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin 
and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe the right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised you, you shall keep the service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by the service? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, and the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So you see faith in action. They go and they take hyssop. Hyssop is a plant known for its cleansing powers. They go, they, they dip the hyssop in the blood, and they paint it on their doorposts and on the lintels of their house. And what happens at midnight? Let's keep reading. Verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captives who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Can you imagine the deafening, chilling scream that happened at midnight in the land of Egypt? You wake up and every single one of the firstborn children in the land are dead. Deafening screams in the middle of the night. Pharaoh himself It says there's a great cry. It's a horror. But I want you to see something very clear in this story. How many plagues led up to the Passover? Nine, right? This is the 10th plague. And on on all those other nine plagues, those nine plagues affected the Egyptians. They did not affect the Israelites. If you go back and read Exodus, Israel was in the land of Goshen. The plagues did not affect them. They were safe from the first nine plagues. But notice how the tenth plague is conditional. It's a conditional plague. What do I mean by conditional? It means that the firstborn of the Israelites were not automatically saved. What did they have to do? They had to put the paint, the the blood on the doors and the lintel, doorposts and lintels of the house. If they had not done that, if they had not done that, there would be no provision for the Israelites. So what's blatantly clear from this? blatantly clear. If God sees no blood, the firstborn of the Israelites would die as well. It's a conditional plague. What does it say God must do? God must pass through, and what must he be able to do? He has to see. When God sees the blood, he passes over. By implication, if God doesn't see the blood, what does he do? He destroys the firstborn. So the Israelites were not automatically saved. They had to, by faith, trust in the provision that God had provided for them. They had to, by faith, go and sprinkle the blood. They had to go paint the doorposts and lintels of their houses. Now let's think more deeply about this for a moment. What exactly was Israel saved from in the Passover? 
What were they saved from? Two things. Two things they're saved from. First of all, they're saved from bondage. They're saved from the tyranny and bondage of Pharaoh. They are allowed to leave slavery and go to freedom. So number one, they're they're freed. But number two, they're saved from the wrath of Almighty God. They are saved from the wrath of God, who, if he does not see the blood on their houses, will destroy. Now, what I want to show you this morning is that Jesus Christ himself is our Passover lamb. None of us will ever go back to that fateful night in Egypt and have to put blood on the doorpost of our house because Christ has come. As a matter of fact, what did, what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus walking by in the Gospel of John? In John one twenty nine, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's a very interesting thing to call Jesus, the Lamb. Now let's even get more emphatic, more specific. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5-7? You can't get any clearer than this. 1 Corinthians 5-7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, let's remember the situation that Israel was in in Egypt. What are they? They're in bondage. They're in slavery. They're under the tyranny and oppression of Pharaoh. What does the Bible say every single person who is without Christ, what's their condition? If you're here this morning and you don't have Christ in your life, let me read to you a passage of Scripture that describes your condition. And it's very, very similar to the condition of the, Israel, of the, Egypt, of the Israelites when they were in Egypt. And actually, as a matter of fact, Andrew read this earlier. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. What does the Bible say about people who are without Christ? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you see the parallels here between Egypt and us? People without Christ are in bondage to Satan, and people without Christ are under the wrath of God. So we desperately need the only provision that God has provided. What's the only provision that God has provided us to get out of the bondage of the devil and out under the wrath of God? It is Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb. So what has Jesus Christ done for us in his cross? What has he done as the Passover lamb to rescue us? You see, we don't have to be in that state of being dead, of being um, enslaved to our flesh, enslaved to the devil. We can be released. It's good news. What does Colossians 2, 13-15 say? You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. What has Jesus done? He sealed the coffin of the devil. And he's released us from captivity of the prince of the power of the air so that we no longer have to be under bondage of this tyrannical ruler. Just like Israelites were under the tyrannical rule of Pharaoh, we no longer have to be under the tyrannical rule of the devil. He's disarmed the authorities. What does Hebrews chapter 2, 
14 and 15 say. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, speaking of Jesus, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What has Christ done? He's released us from the clutches of the devil. The, the parallels are unmistaken. Egyptian bondage. Bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil under God's wrath. Now, as I've been thinking about the Passover, something dawned upon me as I was meditating upon this passage, as I was pondering it. They were commanded to eat the Passover meal as a continual remembrance, right? Eat this meal every year. If you go and you trace the Passover through the Bible, you see that they ate the meal every year. Even up to Jesus' time, at the Last Supper, they were eating the Passover meal. They sacrificed the lamb, they ate the bitter herbs, they, they, they memorialized the Passover. But there was one thing, and I traced this back to the Bible to make sure I was right. There's one thing they were never asked to do ever again. Paint their doors. That was a one-time event. You paint the doors once because only once is God going to pass over and then God's wrath is going to come upon you. Now you memorialize that by celebrating the Passover, but the painting of the doors was a one-time event. Let me just tell you, what's the one-time event that's never repeated? It's the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He died once and for all. Now, the Lord's Supper, we celebrate over and over again, right? And the Lord's Supper is a memorial of the, of the cross of Christ, but Jesus is not crucified over and over again. One time, once and for all, for all the sins of all of his people. Hebrews 9, 11 through 12. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered what? Once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews 9.26 says this, But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We call that the finished work of Christ. What did Jesus cry out when he was on the cross? It is finished, never to be repeated again the finished work of Christ. Now you may be saying, great story, Sean. I like it. It's exciting. The angel of death, the destroyer. What does this have to do with me? It has everything to do with you this morning. Because there is only one provision for you. And let me just be real honest with you this morning. There's going to come a day of judgment when every single one of us is going to stand before Almighty God. And that day is going to be far worse for you than it was for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Think about the horrifying cry that echoed through the streets of Egypt on that fateful night. Think about the cry of anguish that's going to echo through eternity when Jesus says there is a place of hell, of gnashing of teeth, of outer darkness, a place of eternal fire that every single person that does not place their trust in this provision of Jesus Christ will spend eternity there. Do you want to escape that wrath to come? Do you want to be rescued from what is coming? What do you do? What must I do to escape the wrath to come? You do what Moses did. 
You trust in the only provision that's been provided. There's only one provision. It's Jesus. It's his cross. It's his substitutionary atonement. It's Jesus Christ dying in the place of sinners, bearing God's wrath so that we could experience the forgiveness of sins. Listen to the words of Jesus Christ himself when he and his disciples were celebrating the Passover. The Passover itself, okay? Jesus was celebrating the Passover and they're eating bread and they're pouring the wine and Jesus stops and says, guys, I want you to show you something about this Passover. It's all about me. Mark 14, 22 through 24. As they were eating, he took bread and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and and they drank all of it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. This thing we're doing here, this whole Passover we're memorializing, it's about me, my blood being poured out for many. See, there has to be a blood sacrifice. There's no other way. I don't know why God did it that way, but there's no other way. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says this. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So there's got to be shed blood for sin to be forgiven. God has ordained it to be that way. And there's only one provision. Buddhism's not going to help you. Buddhism does not answer the guilt problem. Hinduism, it's not going to help you. It doesn't have an answer for it. Islam does not have an answer for it. New Age spirituality doesn't have an answer for it. There's only one answer for the guilt that all of us has, and it's the blood of Jesus Christ in your life and in my life. Because we stand before a holy God. And oh, that we would get this. It is offensive. God has every right to annihilate us off this planet but he chooses not to in sending Jesus Christ to die in the place of sinners. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 says this, Knowing that you were ransomed, that word ransom means bought, purchased, paid for. Knowing that you were paid for, bought, ransomed from what? The feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with what? The precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, on that final day, on that day of days, God's going to have another Passover. When he Passovers your life, what's he going to see? When God passes over your life on the day of judgment, what's he going to see? Is he going to see the blood of Christ in your place? Or is he not going to see the blood of Christ in your place? For you see, if there's no blood, if there's no sacrifice, if there's no trusting in the only provision that God has provided, then God's full wrath is going to be poured out upon you in hell, just like God poured out his wrath upon the Egyptians. So today, would you please trust in this only provision that God has provided? Trust in Christ alone. Don't trust in being a good person. That's not going to help you. Don't trust in trying to manufacture ways to be, to be good or somehow to, to manufacture ways to deal with the guilt, the ways to deal with the sin. There's only one provision. There's only one way. His name is Jesus. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So can I just plead with you this morning? You know what it means to plead? It means to beg. It means that there may be some of you in this very room this morning that have never trusted in this provision that Christ provides. And my urgent call to you this morning is trust in the only provision that's going to save you from sin. Trust in Jesus Christ today. And just remember this. (laughs) There's nothing worthy in you that would make God do this. Don't ever think that somehow you deserve this. The Egyptians were idolaters. Israelites were idolaters. We are idolaters. How many times have we slapped God in the face and we've rebelled against this mighty God? We do not deserve one ounce of God's grace, but God gave us the provision of Jesus Christ to cover our sins. The question I have before you is is a no-brainer. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you trust in Jesus? He's ready. He's willing. He's able to save to the uttermost any sinner, and I mean any sinner. We'll talk about this next week that would humble themselves before this great God, that would repent of their sins before this great God, that would ask of this great God to forgive all their sins. So at that final day, when God passes over your life, he sees the blood of Jesus Christ in your place, and you're covered. The only other alternative is wrath. And I don't want anybody in this place to experience the wrath of an almighty God. Trust in Christ today the only provision that can save you out of bondage and the only provision that can save you from God's wrath. Jesus Christ, our true Passover lamb. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And honestly, I don't know what more I can say. There's not really much more I can say. This is the point where we come and trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to do a work that cannot be manufactured by a preacher. I cannot talk anybody in this place into trusting Christ for salvation. It's got to be a sovereign work of God Almighty coming down and opening eyes and opening hearts and bringing conviction this morning. So I don't want to get in the way of the Holy Spirit, so I want us just to have a time of silence. And dear friend, if you're out there this morning, you have not trusted in this only provision to save you from sin. Would you not harden your heart today? Would you trust in Jesus Christ alone? Would you trust in Christ? Cry out to him and you will find him ready, willing, and able to save you. Spend some time crying out to your Savior this morning.